From WFIU, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. So it was about feeding people. Um, often when we think about farming cooperatives, we think about a very particular type of food, but at the very basic level of what she was trying to do is she was trying to feed people. On this last week of Black History Month, we take a look back at an interview from 2018 with Dr. Priscilla McCutcheon about her research on civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. Alex Chambers talks with Dr. McCutcheon about Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative in rural Mississippi and what today's food movement might learn from Hamer's work. And we speak with Chef Freddie Bitsui of the Mitsutom Cafe in the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. He shares recipes and talks about native cuisines. That's all just ahead on Earth Eats. Our guest today is Dr. Priscilla McCutcheon. She spoke with us during a visit to the IU campus in February of 2018. Producer Alex Chambers talks with Dr. McCutcheon about her research on activist Fannie Lou Hamer and the relevance of her work for today's food movement. I'm talking today with Priscilla McCutcheon, Assistant Professor of Pan-African Studies and Geography Geosciences at the University of Louisville. Her research is about African-American farmers and food communities in the U.S. South. Uh, She's published articles on Muhammad Farms, a 1,500-acre farm in Georgia owned and run by the Nation of Islam, and a program at a black Protestant church in Atlanta that provides what she calls emergency soul food. Her current research is about the great civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer and the Freedom Farm Cooperative she started in 1969 in Sunflower County, Mississippi. Thanks again for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. First, a little background on Fannie Lou Hamer. She's known for her voting rights activism in the South in the 1960s. She led the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party, which was dedicated to gaining the right to vote for African Americans. Hamer leads the party to the 1964 Democratic National Convention in New Jersey with the goal of integrating the all-white Democratic Party. Um, There were a lot of conversations about how this should be done, uh, but Fannie Lou Hamer, being the person that she was, she decided to really take matters into her own hands, and she took the floor. The live television feed cut away at that point, but the cameras kept rolling and her entire speech was recorded. And so what Fannie Lou Hamer is really known for is the words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she's talking about the conditions of African Americans um, in Mississippi and that the world and really the country is not paying any attention to it. And so that kind of um, catapulted her into the national scene, but she was already um, doing a lot of work really in the rural South and across the nation. Some of the conditions that Hamer was witnessing around her and experiencing herself were malnutrition and hunger. Hamer herself suffered from diseases associated with poor nutrition, such as diabetes and hypertension, and she lacked access to health care in her community due to segregation. Hamer's response to these conditions was to organize and to act. She attempted herself, along with other activists, to go and gain the right to vote. Um, And there were a few instances where um, not only was there pushback, but there was an instance where her bus was stopped um, from returning from going to vote. They were arrested, and so she and other activists um, were arrested. She was taken to jail. She was beaten in jail. She was sexually assaulted in jail. And so all of that stuff kind of um, influenced her to really keep pushing. None of it stopped her. If anything, it just made her push harder for that purpose. Um, She saw voting, I think, as really central to livelihood. And so when you think about things like access to land, that couldn't really happen without African-Americans having the sustained right to vote. 
That's Priscilla McCutcheon talking with Alex Chambers about Fannie Lou Hamer. In just a moment, we'll return to our conversation and learn about Hamer's efforts to put African Americans in charge of their own food security. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. If you're just joining us, Our guest today is Dr. Priscilla McCutcheon. She's been talking with Alex Chambers about the work of Fannie Lou Hamer. In addition to her voting rights activism, which she's well known for, Hamer also started the Freedom Farm Cooperative. Dr. McCutcheon's current research focuses specifically on this aspect of Hamer's work. Alex asked her to explain. So it was about feeding people. Um, Often when we think about farming cooperatives, um, especially in the sustainable ag movement, we think about a very particular type of food. But at the very basic level of what she was trying to do is she was trying to feed people because she saw hungry people and malnourished people directly around her. And she was one of those people um, herself. And so she also saw that land being um, in some ways a way to build economic development among black people as a whole in that area. And so she had um, subsistence agriculture as a part of that land. She um, gave people insight into how to apply for agricultural loans. So it's kind of this multi-layered project um, where feeding people was a part of it, but I think really at the basis of it was um, economic development um, among black people as a whole. So it consisted of um, land for agriculture, and so typical things like okra, melons, any type of food that people would need for those purposes. It also had a pig bank. And so the pig bank um, became a way to um, produce other pigs for slaughter. And these pigs would uh, really last families if they were processed and stored correctly for a year. And so the pig bank to me was one of the more interesting parts of it because we don't think about how long um, really one pig could last if it's stored and processed correctly. Yeah, I think the pig bank is really interesting too. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I don't think we it's something we really think about very much. Yeah. And um, but I guess it was important and sort of this really interesting innovation because it was a way that families could feed themselves cheaply. Right. And since pigs are pretty omnivorous, it's relatively cheap to feed them. And exactly. So, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That's very cool. <laughs> so the far- Freedom Farm itself had she invited families or families would find out about this and then they would get a house. Yeah, and so in some cases they got a house. Everyone who benefited um, from the agriculture did not live on the land, Um, but in many cases um, they were able to have their um, own house or in some cases first house on this land. People applied. Everyone knew, especially in that area, who Fannie Lou Hamer was, Um, and so people applied to um, live on the land, and most people were pretty excited about the program. People didn't have to 
necessarily pay to live there. No, I mean, she knew that the families um, that she aimed to work with were, did not have the capital and were not able to afford to pay to live there. And so um, in some cases, families did pay small amounts, but in most cases, there was no um, buy-in in terms of capital to live there. But they still provided labor, and so the people working on the farms were the people that um, were living on the land. It was local food in really the truest sense, um, but it wasn't often the fancy, sustainable ag food that we think about. So you're doing this research on Fannie Lou Hamer, uh-huh. and she's very, you know, it's, I think it's really exciting to sort of be reminded of especially the ways that she was involved with land mm-hmm. and farming and food politics, uh, not just voting rights. Yeah. I found this quote, this thing she once said, that food, quote, allows the sick one a chance for healing. The silent ones, a chance to speak. Mm. The unlearned ones, a chance to learn. And the dying ones, a chance to live. Mm. That Um, says it all. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I guess I'm thinking about, like, why is... And this is in regard to her work at the time, Mm -hmm. but also sort of ongoing. Why is access to food important um, beyond sort of what we think of as sort of like just health and not being hungry? Why is it important sort of in a bigger political sense? I mean, I think that um, some of it is about having power and so the power to be able to control what's going in your body and control your livelihood. Um, I think um, without food, like there's so many different things. And so kind of going back to that quote that you're just not able to do um, and or do to the best of your ability. And so thinking about school children who are going to school hungry, they're not able um, to learn in the way that they should, in part because they just um, they're hungry at the same time. And so, I mean, I think um, with just a, on a daily basis, there are things that having um, access to food does. Um, but I think maybe on a broader um, socio-political basis that you're talking about, um, access to land, access to land for the purpose of growing food, um, in some ways um, equals power and really self-determination. So maybe that's a better word to use, um, that you're controlling your livelihood and also the livelihood of your family in a way, in a way that maybe you haven't, um, you haven't had access to. If you think about, so I'm thinking about like a 1969 text called Let Them Eat Promises. Um, and so it's one of the, it was one of my first kind of introductions into hunger literature. And so it's about um, Marion Wright. And so now Marion Wright Edelman and Robert Kennedy, she takes Robert Kennedy down to the Mississippi Delta to show him some of the conditions. And so at that time, one of the things that comes from the book is that it almost seems as though people are uh, really systematically being denied food for the purpose, uh, well, really for the purpose of oppression. And so I think when you think about um, food denial is not really on an individual basis, but what does it do to a community of people when you don't have access to really safe and healthy food? And so the question of safety, um, that seems, I guess, kind of odd when you're talking about food, um, but really controlling your own food source, I think, is important. Um, and really, Hamer saw it as important. Do you, and do you see that? Um, how does that uh, continue to play out today? I mean, when you think about um, communities, and so not just um, urban communities of color, but rural communities of color, what types of grocery stores are in these communities? What types of fast food restaurants are in these communities? And communities really just wanting 
healthy food and not having access to it. And so having entire urban communities without grocery stores or having um, really even, and it goes really across geographic boundaries, but urban and rural communities, that in some cases when they do have grocery stores, they're not having produce that anyone would want to buy. And so I think um, when you think about like how it plays out today, like you think urban agriculture is a big part of it. And so having land to grow food on, um, rural agriculture is a big part of it. But people should also be able to walk into the grocery store and get something that's um, healthy and affordable, like a lot of us can do in the neighborhoods that we live in. Um, And you don't have that type of access now. At this point, Alex asked Dr. McCutcheon what she would like to say to the food movement today. I mean, there's a lot that I would want to say to the food movement. I think that like, at its very basis, the push for safe, healthy, and local food is something that we all should be striving for. And so I think in general, the food movement is trying to go in the right direction. But I think just focusing on food without focusing on structural inequalities that influence why people eat certain foods and um like what types of foods are located in certain neighborhoods, I think that doesn't work. And so if you're just addressing healthy food, but you're not addressing like segregation in housing or poverty in housing or um, not having um, well-funded schools, I don't think you can address schools um, really in an isolated manner, if that makes sense. And so I think um, this idea of safe and healthy food, there are some people possibly outside the food movement who look at it as a problem that's um, maybe secondary to problems that they see as more central to certain neighborhoods. And so I think for the food movement, if they maybe looked at that problem as a part of these larger structural issues, there might be more buy-in. And there's also a level of people maybe knowing it all in the food movement about what people should eat and how people should eat that can be um, a little... That can turn people off a little. So can you, um, I mean, I feel like part of this is like racism. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly class is an issue as well. Yeah, but the intersection really of racism and classism. But How does that play out? Can you give an example? So maybe um, not even thinking about food that's culturally appropriate to certain groups. And so I've been in certain spaces in the food movement without naming them, that where there will be this outright assault on things like pork. And so this idea that pork is bad for your health, no one should eat it. And even that approach, like nutritionally, is not totally nuanced. But in some cases, you're telling cultures of people that everything they're doing is bad and we know the right way to do it. And that's not always the case. Um, and so I think that's, um, that's one of the ways that I see it, um, that I see it play out. Also, this push for getting everyone back to the land. And so one of the things I always try to do in my talks is make a caveat that everyone doesn't want to farm, and they shouldn't have to. And so, like I said, you should be able to go into stores and get food that's healthy. You shouldn't have to go out on the land and farm. It's something I like to do, but everyone doesn't like to. And urban agriculture is not going to solve the problems of the world, in my opinion. But it seems like some people um, in the food movement Uh, may think that. I jumped in to ask Dr. McCutcheon about specialty health food stores and how those spaces might not feel familiar or comfortable to everyone. What if we could just have high-quality, healthy food available at the regular grocery store? So a lot of these specialty stores, which are stores that 
you know, I go to if I get I get the chance to. But they're very white spaces and they can sometimes be unwelcoming. And so even if you know your way around these spaces, you still feel as though it's this kind of weird feeling of not belonging when you walk into these spaces. And so I would agree with you that um, having healthy produce at just a regular store and so a Kroger and in some communities even you know a corner store is necessary um, and not just um, at specialty stores and so not only can they be exclusive based on race but they're also um, not inclusive based on income and so a lot of people just can't afford to do their daily shopping um, at a lot of these stores. What can the food movement learn from this history? that you're working on about Fannie Lou Hamer? I mean, I think a part of it is that that there are African-Americans, um, and in particular African-American women, that bring some um, level of expertise to the food movement um, in terms of local ag- agriculture and also um, cooperative farming movements. Um, and so um, this idea that African-Americans, sometimes we, we limit their experiences to slavery and sharecropping and don't understand that even within those experiences, there's a level of expertise that they had to have to make this actually, um, for farms to actually function. And so I think that that's one thing that we can learn from these um, historic farming developments that African-Americans have always done this work. And so we're not in the food movement introducing African-Americans to really much for lack of better words that there's a there's a cultural history of this work that's already that's always been done Um, and you can see that in some cases so when you look at urban agriculture in places like Detroit Chicago Atlanta a lot of people African Americans are pointing to rural roots of this agriculture and so this has this always being done um, in their families and really them passing it on for generations it's a different way to maybe think about cooperatives and so how do we create buy-in maybe for communities or for individuals who may not have the capital to buy in, but maybe have other resources that they can contribute um, and also and sustain food movements based off of these resources. I think something else, if you think about Hamer's movement, um, she wasn't just growing food, that voting rights, grants, scholarships became a large part of it. And so when you think about these isolated examples of food movements where people are just growing food, which is incredibly important. But again, how do we think about other issues that come alongside it? So she was she was in many ways trying to solve larger structural issues and food became, um, she understood that feeding people was an important part of that. Yeah, it was a bigger, it was part of a bigger thing about yeah. people having access to all kinds of different resources. Exactly. And so putting those in the same place. Mm-hmm was really important. Um, no one has the time to figure out how that's um, to get to all of these different resources, and she's doing it literally in one geographic space. Yeah, I think that's a really great and fascinating and essential and powerful piece. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. She's a great woman, or was a great woman. That was Dr. Priscilla McCutcheon of the University of Louisville. We have links on our website to a recording of the speech Hamer delivered at the Democratic National Convention in 1964. We're sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's what the lady would yell. 
plus more information about Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative. Find that and more at eartheats.org. Trying to vote, you were thrown in jail. Though Native American food is the oldest cuisine on the continent, it's only started showing up in glossy food magazines and the high-end restaurant scene in recent years. Chefs like Sean Sherman of The Sioux Chef approach Native cuisine through foraging traditional ingredients and bringing back the foods his Oglala Lakota ancestors may have eaten. Chef Ben Jacobs is a tribal member of the Osage Nation and the co-founder of Takabe, Their place is fast, casual Native American food, with two locations in Denver. There is not one Native cuisine. As the executive chef at the cafe in the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., my guest, Freddie Bitsui, gets that. Fundamentally, what my driving force in my career is all about is to make a pathway for Native cuisine. The museum's cafe is called Mitsutam, which means let's eat, in the native language of the Delaware and Piscataway peoples. The menu is crafted to enhance the museum experience by exposing guests to some of the indigenous cuisines of the Americas and to offer a chance to explore the history of native foods. But there are so many traditions. Being the chef at a museum for the Native American cultures throughout the Western Hemisphere, it kind of puts a lot on as far as the explanation, the execution, and the presentation of the foods, because there is that responsibility of trying to present things that are indigenous to different regions of the country and still having to have a solid story and knowledge of where these dishes come from. If you are not Native American but have attended a powwow, you might be thinking about fry bread. It's a tasty, deep-fried dough made with white flour, often served topped with stewed meats or beans. Though it holds a solid place in many Native food traditions today, fry bread has its origins in the mid-1800s when Native peoples were forced to rely on government rations of white wheat flour, salt, and water. Fry bread is not a traditional food of the people native to North America. It's more of a culinary adaptive response to oppression. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in contemporary Native cuisine. Chef Freddie Pitsui didn't prepare fry bread during his recent visit to Indiana University. But he doesn't shy away from it either. He says he'll address the topic in his forthcoming book. I asked him if he noticed a lot of fusions happening in native cuisines. Oh yeah, for sure. So when we look at how food is made, there has to be a way where, like for example, French cooking. Because I went to culinary school and I was formally trained as a French chef. So sometimes what I do when I cook native food is I cook it with the French technique. So inadvertently, that's a fusion in itself. There are some chefs out there who are creating native dishes and native sauces based on French ideas. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's, it's just a matter of how you name it, label it, and say where it comes from. Chef Bitsui prepared a few recipes for the small crowd gathered in the basement cafe of the Wells Library on the IU campus. He made calabacitas, a dish from Santa Fe featuring squash, corn, and peppers. He prepared a salad made from swamp cabbage, otherwise known as hearts of palm. 
swamp cabbage can still be forged in the wild in parts of Florida and is an historical ingredient in Seminole, Miccosukee, and Calusa tribal diets. Chef Bitsui also made a dish featuring roasted pork tenderloin served over a savory bean dish. So this is a three bean ragu. And I know ragu is not a native term, but we in the culinary world have our own little secret code words. So saying ragu means stewed. Stewed beans is something that is pretty much throughout the native world. People will always have a different variation of it. We can get some onions, some celery, and some carrots. Now, if you were a French cook, you would call this mirepoix. Okay, so when you're making this particular dish, you don't want a lot of caramelization happening, okay? Okay, so we're adding the beans. Now, you don't want to mix too much because your beans are already cooked, all right? These are uh, white beans, kidney beans, and black beans. You can use pintos if you'd like, but don't mix too much because it's, gonna, it's just going to get really mushy. And then I'll start the pork dish. All right, so we have um, some cayenne pepper, some New Mexican chili powder, some cumin, brown sugar, some dried mustard, and dried sage. So all of these flavors kind of blend together and have, uh, form a nice rub. So you're just gonna rub it in. You don't put it, I don't put any oil on here because I use the oil in the pan to sear. All right, I apologize if your eyes get watery or you start coughing. Just get all four sides going. And then you put that in a preheated oven at 350. About 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes. So your stew should be um, stewing up by now. So this looks really nice. And as you can tell or probably see, I rarely make sauce a priority for, for a lot of the foods that I do because I think it's important to understand that there are some sauces involved with some native foods, but we have to, I have to grow that distinction between what French food is and what native food is. With native food, it's a little different kind of uh, perspective, a little frame of mind. So I try to purposely do without the sauce just to prove a point to people. And I get to tell you, my French chef friends will say, well, there's no sauce. Nobody in the room that day missed the sauce. Samples of all the dishes were passed around for everyone to taste after the cooking demonstration, I asked him about the role of food. Food does everything. Food can comfort. Food can bring people together. Food can even bring family together. And most families don't like spending time together. And if food can do that, trust me, it, it can do a lot. But in all seriousness, food is actually, I think, the main conduit of storytelling, especially indigenous food. And I'm not referring to indigenous culture. I'm talking about the foods that are indigenous to certain areas of the world. Not just the U.S. alone, but throughout the world, because that's where that particular ingredient is from. That ingredient will always tell the story. And as long as that story is there, it becomes a part of people's culture. Food really has this power. Chef Freddie Bitsui was a guest of the IU Bloomington Arts and Humanities Council as part of Indiana Remixed. We have his bean ragu recipe on our website. EarthEats.org. That's our show. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Priscilla McCutcheon, Alex Chambers, and Freddie Bitsui. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. 